HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Chun, founder of Mother-in-Law's, the crowd favorite brand that started the fermented foods craze way back in 2009. Known for its beloved kimchi, gochujang, and gochugaru, Mother-in-Law's began with a single skew house Napa cabbage reserve kimchi delivered to specialty grocery stores like Dean and DeLuca. In 2014, mother-in-law's launched gochujang, again setting a trend and bringing a new flavor to a lot of American home kitchens. Most recently, they launched mul, a drinkable probiotic kimchi that's once again bringing something new into the market. Mother-in-law's products are available at over 10,000 retailers nationally, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, H-E-B, The Fresh Market, Meyer, and more. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Allie. It's such a pleasure to be uh, here with you. Yeah, you are a listener. Yes, huge fan. <laughs> when you started way back when uh, episode, mm-hmm. I just felt like you were a friend, like talking to me, like you were a friend in the biz. And I just love, <laughs> you know, the questions you ask, the people you have on and just really yeah. help keep the sanity and keep it real, you know, of, uh, you know, being in the biz. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, that's a good segue. I appreciate it, but it's actually, I mean, you started almost a decade before I did. I mean, you've, when you've really been in the business and, you know, I, I feel connected to a lot of brands like yours that, that sort of were in that early 20, 
you know, 2010s time of, you know, food renaissance and cooking again and Instagram just got started and people were starting to think, um, I guess, just about specialty food in a way um, that was different from before. And you were sort of one of those pioneering brands way back then. So it doesn't feel like that crazy long ago in a lot of ways, but I feel like it was a different world. Um, I guess just from a very, you know, you've been in it now for, you know, 13, 14 years, just an overview of what has really changed or what has stayed the same before we even get into your story, I think would be kind of cool. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for so, you know, poignantly really bringing up that, that, you know, that, that time frame because it really was a food renaissance. And I think it mm-hmm. was that time of um, local food movement and, mm-hmm. um, and the Brooklyn, you know, food craft movement. I mean, the, the, yep. the Brooklyn thing was just happening and, and it, interesting. It was happening at sort of the worst kind of financial crisis and everyone mm-hmm. losing jobs and myself included really be, was like the impetus of, 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 of totally. building these, these huge kind of, you know, movements, if you will. But it really was this kind of renaissance of people really taking action and caring about the food and what kind of food they were buying and eating and choosing. So it was a really um, just, a, just an amazing kind of movement to be part of. Yep. Um, yeah. It, I mean, jumping on that, because I do want to hear sort of your overview, but that is such an interesting point. And I was just talking about it with my team because, you know, I don't know that they've been through as professionals in a career through a cycle like this. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to sort of see what comes out of you know, they always talk about the Malibu fires and not to make light of anyone's experience there. But with after the fire, there tends to be this massive rebirth of, you know, that's just sort of ecologically what happens. And I think it's also true with us. You know, we 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 have these periods where things get maybe a bit over bloated and so much money into something and so much craziness and then inevitably a bubble bursts and then you have all this pent up creativity and people just have to be super scrappy, but there's something like earthing about it in a way. And that is, I mean, I was a part of that just because I had the cooking school and I got to be with all of the people making products all the time, but I didn't make one at that point. So what was it like to, to, go into the world like that? And I guess going back to the other question, you know, what's been the big shift, would you say? Yeah, I mean, and I and I do think that just like, you know, you're saying, like, I mean, it's, we, anytime I think there is like this kind of hardship or recession or, you know, mm-hmm. pandemic, like there is something that is like the silver lining that comes out of it. And, you, and I do think that there's, you know, opportunity as, an entrepreneur to kind of see, mm-hmm. you know, what's missing and to be able to, to, to voice and unearth that, that new thing. So, um, yep. so, I mean, I really think that the longevity in, in, in the food business and just what, from what I've seen, you know, from decade plus of, 
it, you know, it, that it's really about this, the sustainability of, of, of a business that can really grow organically, authentically, and that it just is not just a trend, but that it has staying power, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so I mean, I think, you know, I think about what sort of you've done with, um, with Haven's Kitchen as well, and it's this kind of this thing that the need for something that was fresh, but like, you know, in a refrigerated space and nobody was like doing that. And and to be able mm-hmm. to kind of do something like that, that really um, has, you know, and, and I love when you really say that it's like this category bending type of thing that, you know, I mean, when kimchi was being launched uh, for me uh, in the, mm-hmm. with, uh, with the retailers in 2010, there was really, you know, up until that point, kimchi was something that either people would always say they they bought at a restaurant or they got it at a restaurant, um, but not mm-hmm. something that they were really thinking about wanting to go and buy at the, at the grocery store level. And right. um, and it was this thing that was usually in the corner of a produce, you know, with mm-hmm. next to tofu, sad looking vegetable somewhere. And then with with kind of with when uh, Whole Foods was really kind of you know, becoming such a dominant player and, and really kind of creating the natural foods category, they, right. they, you know, kimchi went into that sort of um, fermented dairy. And that's really kind of when it really kind of had this cachet of, of being something new, if you will. And that was, was so you started, um, I love the story about like going into Dean and DeLuca and then being like, why isn't it here? And then it was there because you made it there. Yeah. It was like, talk <laughs> you about put it. it there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you manifested that. Yeah. I mean, some people might not even know what Dean and DeLuca was who were listening to this, which is kind of wild. Like, I, I think that, um, the world of specialty food has kind of morphed into, you know, all the channels have sort of bled into each other a little bit, but what year did it launch in Whole Foods? Uh, probably about, a year or two after that. So, um, right. Yeah. Like 2011 ish. Yeah. And going back to sort of the, the story, your mother, um, they, her, your mother's family had a restaurant called mother-in-law's house. Is that? Yes. And, um, what, what was that like? I mean, did you grow up working there or visiting there, going there on Sundays? Like what, what, how did, no, she. What was your? Yeah, no, for she. That? Um, she had started this restaurant right when I was in college, so it was sort of came mm. much later for me, and it was just mm-hmm. like a business. I didn't think that much of it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. It was. I mean, because for kind of you know, growing up in an immigrant family, I was about eight years old when um, I immigrated uh, mm-hmm. from Korea, um, South Korea, but. Um, it was just, you know, food was always something that was important, but that was nothing that was particularly different or interesting. Um, my mother started the the restaurant business actually um, as a widow because my father had passed away suddenly um, a few years before that. And so she just had this kind of money that she wanted to invest in something and, mm-hmm. and somehow it became a restaurant. So, um, so she started this <laughs> restaurant and then while I was living in New York um, and I'd go and visit my mother, um, she would pack up kimchi for me from the restaurant that was really special and, you know, put it in a, 
Ziploc bag and I had a certain way that I wrapped it like triple or quadruple times with newspaper. <laughs> and to, and uh-huh. I had a really good system of being able to, to check it in and then bring it uh, to New York. And I'd share it with my my roommates who really, you know, one roommate loved it, the other one not so much, but right. it was just something that was just a little piece of home and um, yeah, mm-hmm. that, that uh, I always had with me. And little did I know that, you know, about 10 years of doing that, that all of a sudden I would launch, you know, a, a business, um, you know, selling kimchi. Um, so. And how did that end up? I mean, how did, I know you were into wine and I, and then you, I think you went to, um, why am I spacing on like the big food thing? I was working in a wine magazine. I had worked, you know, in some fancy French restaurants. I had mm-hmm. really kind of fallen in love with, um, you know, just the Western food culture and all of that. And, you know, and at the same time, I was, you know, working um, day job, desk job, you know, I was working in marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when I lost that last sort of job um, mm-hmm. back in 2008, um, I just mm-hmm. really was soul searching because I couldn't figure out, well, I don't want to have a restaurant. I've seen my mother run a restaurant. I don't, right. you know, that's not what I want to do. And I thought for a long time I'd open up a, a specialty wine shop because all the mm-hmm. cool sommeliers and people that have done, you know, amazing things in wine, they all end up with really cool wine shops. And I thought that's mm-hmm. really what I want to do, I think, you know, and I mm-hmm. would go to spend all this time um, having informational interviews with people that I thought had really cool jobs, which was usually like something in wine or or something in hospitality. And I was having coffee with, with a woman who was a consultant in, in the hospitality business. And she was, you know, the power of having coffee, just meeting up for coffee people <laughs> is amazing because mm-hmm. that coffee changed my life. I mean, she mm. told me about this unfancy food show that was happening mm. in Brooklyn. And sure, everybody's yep. heard of the fancy food show at Javits, but this was the unfancy one. And right. so that's when I heard about all the the makers of, you know, food that were making it and selling it, you know, and this was also about the time when that whole thing was happening in Greenpoint and there was an article right. in the New York Times and somebody they had to shut it down and all this, you know, <laughs> I know it's yeah. like history. No, it, but it, um, I mean, it's so crazy to think like I, I really divide the world a little bit into befores and afters. Like there was before the financial crisis and after. Then honestly, like it sounds nuts, but there was before Instagram and after. Right. And for food, everything changed. Everything changed because all of a sudden people were taking photographs of what they were eating, where they were eating. And it became like, you know, I guess sort of a social flex in a way to show the breadth of your palate yeah. and how many different types of foods, you know, you have experienced. And then it got into now I can make those things, which ended up fueling the cooking school growth, which, you know, I had no idea was going to happen. Um, but you go to the unfancy food show. I mean, kimchi at that point, safely, I think, safe to say that it was not in a lot of American home kitchens. 
No, but I mean, what was interesting to me, though, was right around, because I used to read the New York Times, like Wednesday food section, like it was the Wall Street Journal. It was like Mm -hmm. the thing that I would wait, you know, print edition people, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. to, To read all the stories. And I remember it was about the time the Twitter and, um, you know, Kogi truck, the, you know, the chef uh, in L.A., Roy Choi, mm-hmm. and he was calling it his, you know, food truck, kimchi tacos and kimchi, you know. Right. This, the, and I thought, hmm, interesting. It's already in, you know, the consciousness of Americans in a way mm-hmm. that you would have never, ever in a million years imagined. Now, everybody's talking about this kimchi taco truck, you know, because of mm-hmm. Twitter and Mm-hmm. And and I remember that sort of being like kind of like a clue when I was really trying to search for like what kind of business would I want to have um, right. during that time. So so yeah, I could have never imagined, and yet like that was really like a just like a sign, if you will. Like everybody's talking about kimchi, but people probably don't even know what kimchi is. And when you went into Whole Foods a couple of years later, I'm just wondering, like, how did they even know? what to expect from a velocity perspective. I mean, you were, I assume you were next to good old fashioned pickles and sauerkraut, which is basically where we are now. Right. I mean, we're, we're all, I think, together still. Um, did they even know, was the plan, okay, this is, you know, going to all of a sudden start being a part of the zeitgeist or was the plan, okay, there are people who are clearly looking for this, so it's something that we have to have for a certain amount of people. And we understand it's not going to necessarily fly off every shelf. Like were there discussions about it with Whole Foods? No. I mean, I think they had one, you know, kimchi on the shelf. It was the one with Mm -hmm. the lady's face, you know, that had been around every co-op, I think in in the Northeast for a really long Mm -hmm. time. And sort of going in as a newbie, I had no idea. I, every time I would do demos and, and Whole Foods, and that's basically all I did for the first like three to four years of the business mm-hmm. is I would just, I had a system, I'd have this, you know, portable little table with, you know, mm-hmm. and had my whole demo kit and I just set up shops. Sometimes I do two a, a day, you know, sometimes just, wow. and I would just go and meet people and talk about kimchi and people would literally tell mm-hmm. me like, this jar is too big. We're talking about a 16-ounce jar, you know, standard. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really, how small do you think it should be? They're like, oh, you you want it kind of small. They're like, you know, I'd have people that'd be like, and, I, and in my mind, I thought, well, are people buying this like once a month, once every three months? Like, how long is it right. taking them to eat this? Because then people would ask me stuff like, well, how many bites of this do I have to eat a day for the probiotics? Mm-hmm. Or like, mm-hmm. tell me, like, you know, so... I, from a velocity standpoint, I had no idea what number I was supposed to hit, you know? Right, All I know right. is that I would show up at the demos and if my success was if I could get, you know, a case and a half, two cases, you know, in somebody's basket that they never thought of buying kimchi, that was that was my mission, to get people to taste it and, and eat it, you know? Yeah, I mean, and your mission... I mean, in the store is sort of similar to what your mission was in general, because, you know, you not only had to show people that this tasted good, but literally start, I would imagine, with a lot of people at like square one. What is this? Exactly. And then there's the whole benefits story. I mean, now gut health is gut health and everyone knows probiotics and fermentation and all that, but 
I mean, it was kind of starting maybe a little bit in 2011, but I, I don't recall it being top of mind. There's certainly, the word functional wasn't even in the like zeitgeist at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was really what sort of drove me to to want to work on the the cookbook and uh mm-hmm. you know, two and a half years into it and you know, I had friends that I was sharing, you know, the communal kitchen with that you know had you know, had cookbooks and I was just asking about this idea. I said I really want to work on a cookbook so I could tell, you know, educate people and ask, tell people the kimchi story and say, it's not just Napa cabbage. You can make it with any vegetables. It's a seasonal Mm -hmm. pickling tradition, much like any pickling tradition. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and then to show, you know, how to eat it, like, what do you cook with it? You know? And, and I think, you know, the best sort of idea was to really kind of take this idea of, uh, of kimchi and a grilled cheese sandwich and, make a kimchi mm-hmm. grilled cheese set. I once like sold out of all the cheese and all the kimchi and standing in the corner <laughs> of the store <laughs> and people were like, I'm going to go home and make that, you know? Um, right. So it's really being able to tell that, that story and, and be able to tell, you know, this, this, yeah, what is kimchi and, and talk about probiotics too, in, in a way that that really hadn't been before. And uh, interestingly enough at the time too, and I was doing a ton of just I'm trying to understand, like, what what was it about, you know, sauerkraut and sauerkraut became this thing that became shelf stable. So it was really confusing mm-hmm. for many people to, mm-hmm. to understand the, the the link between, you know, what is raw fermented vegetables. Right. Yeah. Now it seems like, OK, obviously the probiotics are alive and they need, you know, that refrigeration to stay potent. And, right. You know, once it's hot filled, they're all, you know, dead and the whole thing. But, you know. I mean, I'm just picturing you back then, and it, I, people didn't even, I mean, I was giving farmer's market tours those years um, three times a week, and people just didn't even understand. I mean, Michael Pollan had just written Omnivore's Dilemma. Right. It, people were so disconnected from food and so disconnected from why certain foods are good. It's so interesting, actually, when you think about just, like, what happened in the next decade. Um what surprised you back then? Were, I mean, it sounds to me like the way you tell the story, you you sound like you were just kind of like, okay, this is this is good. Now I'm going here and now I'm getting, you know, but were you, I mean, it must have been hard. Just, com- I mean, I think it's hard now creating sort of a new category, you know, going back up to the beginning. You really... You were really trailblazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, you were. And I mean, that must not, I would imagine that was frustrating. And yet here you are, you're in 10,000 stores with stores like Meyer, which aren't necessarily known for, you know, being cutting edge. So going back to sort of the discussion about the cookbook a little bit, I'm wondering how you feel like that played into kimchi awareness, your brand's awareness, your authority, you know, to some extent, like, do you think that it um, built built brand recognition for you? Or do you think it's one of those things that just like is good to have when you're meeting new buyers and things like that? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, I think just having a cookbook really, you know, gives that authority and, and really, um, but 
really it was about trying to get more people to understand kimchi beyond just, you know, what is it? How do you use it? And really tell that full story uh, of, mm-hmm. of, of, and really just voicing a passion around this, this tradition and this, I think, um, something that's, that's real that I really wanted to share with a much bigger, um, you know, voice in the world of, um, and, yeah. not, and also that it just was, it was never about just like Korean food. It was about, um, about kimchi being something beyond, you know, just one thing and that it was, right. yeah, it, that it would, you can put it on a grilled cheese sandwich and you can put it, you know, with your muscles and, you know, you can put it on and, and, and enjoy it in so many ways. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Groovy. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about you doing it all over again with gochujang. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese... The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Lauren Chun, founder of Mother-in-Law's Kimchi. Um, Okay, so... It's 2014, 2016. Things are going in a pretty good direction. You're kind of, you're opening doors, you're building a team. What was the impetus to do a new line? What was, you know, what were your thoughts about, again, going into something where you were going to be educating consumers? Um you know, how did you think about innovation, I guess, at that point? And where was the business, I guess, around then? Well, we were just starting to sell at Whole Foods and, um, mm-hmm. you know, region by region. It was still, I mean, I was a, a one-woman shop for like first five years of the business, if you can wow. believe it. amazing. I mean, I, used, I mean. yeah. So, um, so, but, uh, you know, gochujang, it kind of came in because actually I had a friend of mine who was like, you know, gochujang could be the next big thing. And I didn't think that much of it, quite honestly, because wow. I actually- prescient friend. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah because because <laughs> I was really like, I really like tenjang. I really like the, the Korean, like um, that soybean paste. So I, I mm-hmm. didn't really think that much of it. But the thing at heart was that I, the, from the first day that I started the kimchi business, I thought, I thought, well, this is the worst idea ever. Like, this is so hard. <laughs> Not just because it's refrigerated, but the whole thing, like, it can explode. I mean, it was just... Yeah, can we talk a bit about that before we get into the gochujang? Okay. Like, you, you're, what makes mother-in-law so good, too, isn't just that it's refrigerated. Mm-hmm. It's like 
it is quickly sent out into the world. So it's fermenting in the jars on the shelf, like getting deeply flavored, getting all of that, you know, probiotic action. Like it's really, you know, to use an overused word, like it's as kind of authentic and true to form as it can be. How did you, what what was that supply chain like for you, just getting that up and running? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, there's so much kind of in the industry talking about sell-by date and how, when does this expire? And I've had so many people mm-hmm. that would buy it and, first of all, didn't even know that you had to put it in, keep it in the refrigerator. So I, oh, so yeah, I've, that's fun. So I've had people yeah. that were like, oh, and I was p- first putting it in a mason jar, which is confusing as uh, already because people th- think that it's a canned product. like Right, it, right. You know? And so they had mm-hmm. it in the cabinet. And it was, like, exploding and it was, like, bending the <laughs> lid and they're like it's oh my really scary looking what do you think I should do you know right right but um but yeah it's it's just all live you know active fermentation that's happening inside the jars so all that refrigeration does is it slows slows down the the the, the activity of fermentation right. but the fermentation is happening throughout its life cycle um and so mm. it's it's a live living food um, so really, not only is it refrigerated, but you have to be able to kind of control and make sure that the, the fermentation doesn't get exacerbated so that you have gases building up inside the lid. And mm-hmm. it, Remember the exploding kombuchas? Yeah, like that. Yeah, that was like a big but, deal. But yeah. people would literally open up our jar of kimchi or whatever, and even though it was refrigerated, it would continually be, you know, uh, fermenting and it would just pop out like they would say it would pop out like a snake. It would pop out (laughs) like, you know, what is going on here? This is so scary. And so until I had to finally, finally, you know, switch that metal cap into something that was, you know, plastic and much Mm. more kind of had less kind of uh, pressure inside. And so now mm-hmm. people ask like, well, why is it not doing that anymore? And I have to go into mm, a whole explanation right. of, That's so it's funny. still good, but like, it's just not fermenting like crazy, like right. you know, with, the, with the metal. As head. intensely. Exactly. Okay. So, and so now going back to, you know, that again, you, you had just gone through launching this thing, getting people to start understanding it, trying to convince people, you know, by tasting it, and now you decide to do a second category. So it's just you now in the business. What was that process like for you? And what what was the thinking behind it other than your friends saying this is going to be a big thing? Because my guess is that you had more input than that. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, because when I started the kimchi business, I thought, well, I should have really done the shelf stable because – this refrigerated, mm-hmm. this thing is so hard. It's so expensive to use refrigerated trucks. And why mm-hmm. did I do this? I didn't know. You got to remember that I didn't know anything about the CPG business. I just kind of dove right oh, in. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. so from the beginning, I wanted a shelf-stable product. In fact, at one point, I, I developed a, a, a shelf-stable kimchi, like called a kimchi salsa, that, mm. um, that I prepared and sort of launched, had a soft launch, but kind of didn't take it much further than that. But Mm -hmm. um, so I've always wanted, I thought that the shelf stable was going to be the answer. So really Mm -hmm. thought, okay, uh, 
uh, this gochujang sauce. And it's really good. I think I don't have to explain to people how to use it because, of course, it's like a, it's a sauce. People will know what to do with the sauce. Well, little uh, little right, did I know. Of course. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I made the same rookie <laughs> yeah, error yeah. when I was like, what do you mean? What do you do? Yeah. You put it on stuff. stuff. Exactly. Like, right. Yeah. But where's the recipe? Right. Like what recipe? Right. Um, so you didn't think you were actually going to have to do that much consumer no, education, which no. put this but, I, but yeah. I realized it was right around the whole explosive growth with, with Sriracha. It was about 2014. Mm-hmm. And it was, so it was really the next kind of, iteration, but I had to be really careful to tell people like, this is not a hot sauce. It's not a hot sauce. It's not trying to like get so hot in your mouth that you use it like a hot sauce. Not only that, the paste is, is thick. And I have to, I keep Mm -hmm. having to tell people it's, it's like a consistency of a tomato concentrate paste, you know? Right. So, um, and then, and then we made sauces that went along with it. And there was a whole back and forth about line pricing and why it should be different price versus the same price. But I was like, it has Mm. to be different price because it's a different, you know, product. But I think from the buyer's perspective, it was always kind of like, well, it's like, it should just be a line price side and pushing back on that. So there were those moments throughout the journey where I was just always kind of pushing back, you know, and trying to really stay true to what I believed was the right way to educate and communicate the product. And was it easier the second time around? I mean, I'm hoping is, you know, I'm hoping that Shelf Stable has, you know, privileges. That I fresh know, does I know. Not. We talked about um, this. We're, you know, fingers crossed. I also think it's going to have, you know, liabilities, right? There's going to be more competition for the shelf space. And I'm going to be playing yeah. against bigger, you know, Competitor, I don't need, there is no competitor right now. So I'm going to have some competition in this next, in this next space. But were you, um, did you find that, you know, some of the muscles that you had built, maybe some of the retailer relationships, like, was it easier launching, I guess, because you had done it before? And if so, why and what was harder? Yeah, I mean, I think I was just taking the learnings of, of the first few years of business, you know, with, with the refrigerated, but really trying to make sure that I had, um, you know, good margins built in to, for marketing right. and things like that. But I think what I found out really kind of quickly was just how vastly different the shelf stable product is because in the you know and everything is like the grass is greener on the other side you know in this business Mm -hmm. maybe in life and everything that we do but it's just Mm -hmm. it's like an inverse relationship so with the shelf stable you get the distribution but the velocities are so much slower than a fresh Mm -hmm. product that it's it's you know in a way like if I if I look at both the product lines I'm like well you kind of have best of both worlds I mean it seems like Mm -hmm. a little crazy to navigate because you have two different sets of buyers two different you know temperatures two different supply chains and all that stuff but in a way you get to see like all your children and be able to see well how how different they behave and how complimentary they can be yeah I mean I always go back to gardening and you know agriculture, but you know you don't want to build a monoculture, yeah you know ever you never want to plant just potatoes. We all know how that ends, yeah, so you know when you have the two different now, from my understanding, you know you don't want to be in too many temperature states just because yeah. that makes it harder for a potential acquisition, yada yada, but I think at this point we're all just trying to build good businesses um 
But three temperature states would be really, really hard yeah. anyway. Two's already there. Um, and so what do you, did you, in launching, I guess, that that second line, did it make you change anything with your first line? Like, are you like, oh, this is how I should have been doing this all along or anything like that? And and then did you hire a team? I'm assuming yeah, that you're not yeah. still just one yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, no, after right around 2015 <laughs> is when we started to really hire the first kind of crew uh, of, of team. Right. You know, we really, we were building it from from then on, really. Um, but having the two different pro- uh, product lines and... Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think I really wanted to keep uh, the, the the line really kind of true and authentic. So, you know, whether it was the decision to to be, you know, in glass and all of those kind mm-hmm. of decisions that you make on packaging, because that's also the, about the time when so much, you know, pouches were happening and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, so th- there was, I think, some learnings there in terms of trying to 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 take what I sort of learned from the first couple of years of business and really launch that second um, product line. And, and what was interesting was just kind of going through, through, you know, the pandemic and seeing how that, how much that really affected our shelf stable line and how good it was for, for the pantry loading and everything that people mm-hmm. were trying to seek out in terms of flavors and different flavor and, and the recipes and the cooking and everything that was happening at the time. So yeah. I'm still trying to figure out a little bit with the pandemic, you know, because when you, people who meet me are like, oh, it must have been amazing for you, right? In terms of just the growth of home cooking and people being at home and wanting more flavor. And I think that's true, but I think there were also definitely a bunch of headwinds, right? We couldn't do any demos. I mean, we went global with Whole Foods the day that America shut down. Right. Literally. It was like a miracle that the UNFI trucks got to Whole Foods. Um, And we had, you know, squirreled away, uh, you know, a chunk of cash to do demos in different places around the country. Um, And we couldn't do anything. And so, and people weren't going into stores. They were ordering what they already kind of new and loved. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's interesting because a lot of people do have some basic cooking skills that they've, they're not, they're not letting it go. I mean, I think everyone, the data is pretty much in like over 75% of people plan on cooking as much as they did, you know, before. Um, If not, you know, just because they've gotten over some of those educational barriers, I think. Um, but I think, you know, to your point, the pantry loading, they're also going out more again. You know, there's, I think we're all going to start to see, we don't even know what to make of the velocities, you know, <laughs> I guess is my point. Are you, um, how do you think, what, what, what's your sort of take on, you know, cooking and flavor and, and what do you, what do you think is the direction? You've been doing this a while You've seen cycles, you've seen ebbs and flows, maybe not a pandemic, but what's your sort of big picture takeaway, do you think? I mean, I think what is authentic and real and what really adds value in people's lives, it just, it's something that they want to have around, you know, it's something Mm -hmm. that they want to, and I think that 
just the amount of probably recipes on gochujang for, you know, alone during during you know, the last couple of years, but like having it be this kind of key ingredient or these key flavors. I mean, the fact that you can um, build something with, you know, with passion and I think with with something that you really believe in, it's something that I think people really you know, respond to and something that mm-hmm. resonates. They can feel. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. I mean, we have some of the highest kind of organic, you know, um, content, like of recipes and, and people cooking, you know, on the on social media with, with you know, mother-in-law's gochujang or kimchi and people are like, oh, I have you in my fridge or I have you in my, mm-hmm. you know, pantry or something. And, and that is, you know, something that is really worthwhile. So I think, yeah, yeah it's, it's just really being able to, be your authentic self, you know, and, and bring that into the category is, is, is something that really will, uh, will serve you, I think, in, in, the, in the long run. And you're doing it again. Yes. So <laughs> you've now introduced um, a lot of people, by the way, when I was talking to my team, they were all like, ah, oh, the, you know, mool kimchi is my favorite. So it's a bit, it's, it's a drinkable kimchi, it's like a little bit more liquid than cabbage is what I'm sort of picking up. Can you, what's the plan here? What's the innovation plan? What were you thinking? Why is this your new thing? Everyone that I talked to was very excited about it. Oh, thank you. Tell me more. So, um, so I thought a lot about, you know, kombucha. So mulgimchi is something that's also in the cookbook, something that you grow up eating your whole life as a Korean. Mm-hmm. Um, especially on hot, sweltering days, you would have this kind of instant kind of cold brothy. It's like a cold kimchi broth um, mm-hmm. with some bits of Napa cabbage. And you, you make it on its own. It's not like a runoff or whatnot. That people, right, it's not yeah, the other thing. Yeah, right. so you would have this refreshingly chilled, just spritzy um, thing, and you would have a boil some quick like noodles, somen, you know, buckwheat noodles, whatever you have on hand, and rinse that in cold water, and you throw it down on this cold broth, and you'd have this most refreshing, you know, mm. gut-happy, just three-minute, mm-hmm. like, pure kimchi broth, you know, ramen, you know, and and, and mm. cold. It's delicious. You sprinkle a little bit of sesame oil on top with little scallions, and that's like your mm-hmm. complete meal. So you kind of grow up eating this your whole life. And I thought it was really about timing. I, in my mind, wanted to launch this, you know, years ago, especially mm-hmm. with kombucha becoming a thing. And now that kombucha and other sodas and this flavor of the savoriness of the thing that you want. That pickly briny. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That I thought, well, now's the time to really talk about mul kimchi. The problem though, I think that, you know, the challenge is, is that most Americans do, we don't live in a culture of, you know, cold noodles now, but who would have thought, you know, five, 10 years ago that, you would see the amount of ramen that there is yeah. in every place you look. You know, everyone knows yeah. ramen. I mean, who would have, and who would have thought, you know, 30 years ago that Americans would be eating sushi the way that it's available mm-hmm. everywhere, right? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but it really kind of comes from my love of just really that that idea of, of eating a like a probiotic rich, you know, meal that in and of itself and how refreshing and, you know, healthy, gut-friendly, all that. Because I, 
Because when I travel and I come back from a trip, whatever, there's some, nothing like, like, you know, kimchi soup or I'll have, you know, some type of that kind of briny probiotic mm-hmm. thing that makes you feel just, you know, recharged. Right. So, In terms of just last question, I guess, in terms of merchandising, is it next to the the original kimchi in that refrigerated sort of pickle fermented set, or is it going to be in a, like a more drinkable or ready to eat soups or like where, and did you have to kind of walk the buyers through that to get them to understand? So again, so interesting (laughs) because I, you know, spent, R&D packaging firm to, to launch, you know, mole kimchi first in like more of a packaging that looks like a drink. And it was really mm-hmm. kind of confusing, I think, for people because mm-hmm. they're like, well, is it a drink? Like, what do I do with it? How do I use it? And then we decided to go back and go back to the to, to our roots and say, no, it's actually going to be a product extent of a line extension of, of our reserve kimchi in a, in mm-hmm. a glass jar. And that's where it's going to live and sit right. so people can understand that it's another way to to eat and enjoy kimchi and not just a right. drink. But that's yeah, that's really yeah. The, the question is where where would you put it? You know, and we've really yeah. decided that it, it should be it should live with the other kimchi. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's so funny because I remember the first question someone asked me when I was like, look, we're going to put, you know, all our sauces from the cooking classes into pouches and they're refrigerated. You know, someone was like, where does it go? And I'm like, what? Like, what do you, what do you mean? It can go anywhere. Kind of like it can go on anything. Um, All right. I know you, you said before, and I thought it was really beautiful. Anything that adds value. Um, and authenticity to, you know, will shine through and will have staying power. Is there any sort of other word of wisdom that you would like to leave with earlier stage founders who haven't been doing it for, you know, 13, 14 years successfully? Yeah. I mean, I think from just a business sense, it's that you just have to protect your margins and um, mm-hmm. really make sure that you don't get yourself into a bad, bad deal, <laughs> whatever right. that may be, um, and really grow thoughtfully and organically, and you know, not be in such a rush, really. And especially mm-hmm. if you're creating a category on its own. And I mean, I love your story, Ali, about you know, about your sauces and you know, Romanesco. You just you're staying authentic and true to the thing that you believe in, these flavors and these sauces and you know, the 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 culinary story behind them. And I think for me that's just really, you know, the success, you know, or the staying power really kind of comes from that, you know, having your own voice of and, and being true to who you are um, because, yep. yeah. Yeah, and you're right. Protecting your margins doing it because I think the slow, you know, that slow and steady growth is real and it's great. Um, and, you know, it just means that you don't get to, you know, buy all the bells and whistles, you know, it means that every account needs to be profitable and every channel needs to be working and, you know, you have to, so funny, you know, I do think that out of this time will come a lot of 
I think we're in 2009 again, 2010 totally. again. You know? Yeah, I'm feeling that. And, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm like, and as hard as like the things that are about, you know, the state of economy and, you know, and inflation and, you know, is this a recession and all of those things that I think these are the times when, when the most magical kind of innovation and, and, and things happen, the opportunities yeah. that you can create for yourself. So agreed. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a long time coming, but I'm thrilled that you were here today. And Armin, thank you for engineering and for getting us through the blips. (laughs) Um, Listeners, uh, as always, things are good. I, you know, I love talking to all of you. I love your messages. I love all of your um, input. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.